When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, the title of this uh, sermon series is God's Reluctant Witness, and that's what Jonah was. God had uh, called him. He's a prophet. God had said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And the prophet's job is to go where God says to go and to speak what God says to speak. And Jonah said no. And he hardened his heart, and he went in the opposite direction as far as you could get on the map. Like the known world, if you looked away from Nineveh in the opposite direction, the farthest they knew was Tarshish. And Jonah said, Tarshish is great this time of year. That's where I'm going. Right? Jonah hardened his heart. He said, I'm not going to go. And, uh, and God, but God won't let Jonah go. You know, Jonah's on the ship. He's out at sea. He's making his way from uh, Joppa to Tarshish. And God sends the storm. And Jonah's cast over. And as Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the sea, he remembers the Lord. He remembers God. He calls out to him in faith, and he's rescued by God uh, through the fish, right? The fish comes and, and swallows Jonah, and Jonah, from the fish, prays this prayer that we looked at in full last week, and we're looking at just in part this week. And it seems like Jonah has come home spiritually, right? It seems like he got it. He's remembered God's goodness, and he's ready to be God's witness in Nineveh. But Jonah's a mixed bag, just like every one of us. There's things about Jonah as we read it that we want to emulate. We think, man, I definitely want to be like Jonah in this instance. But there's other ways when we look at Jonah and we're like, I don't think that's what God's really calling us to do or how God's really calling us to act. Chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. But by the time you get to chapter 4, it sure looks like he went reluctantly. And that brings us to verses 7 through 9, our passage uh, for this morning. What Jonah prays here in verses 7 through 9 is fascinating because on the one hand, it is profoundly true. It nails exactly things that are essential to understand in order to move from being a reluctant witness to actually being a faithful witness wherever God would have us go. And you you think, you look at it like, Jonah, Jonah gets it, but then his life outside the fish makes it look like he doesn't even really comprehend his own words. Well, if you're a Christian, you're called to be a witness. Just like Jonah was called to be a witness. Just like the uh, apostles in Acts were called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We all have our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're all called to be witnesses. Witnesses, faithful witnesses, not reluctant witnesses. What the Apostle Paul was in his day, an ambassador for Christ, with Christ making his appeal through Paul, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, with Christ making his appeal through us. The Great Commission has been handed down from generation to generation since the first century when Jesus Christ delivered it, and it now rests in our hands. And we're called, like Jonah, to be witnesses. But like Jonah, we're reluctant to go. 
According to a recent survey from the Barna Group, 74% of Christians have had less than 10 spiritual conversations in the last year. 74% of Christians, less than 10 spiritual conversations in the last year. Here's the thing. A spiritual conversation is, is defined as any conversation that's spiritual in nature with anyone, including other Christians. And 74%, less than 10 of those, in the past year, Christians or non-Christians. So, you know, I mean, just kind of think about your own life. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, uh, but just think about your own life when it comes to the last year. Have there been five spiritual conversations with non-Christians? Think about the course of your life up to this point, right? What would be the answer? Well, what we're looking at this morning, what we're beginning to get at, this is part one, is what will actually move us from reluctance to faithfulness. And it's not guilt, right? Guilt's a lousy motivator. Guilt is not in God's tool bag. It shouldn't be in our tool bag. So guilt isn't going to move us from reluctance to faithfulness when it comes to being witnesses to God. But neither is technique. I mean, as important it is that we, you know, have a, a good comprehension of how to share the gospel with people and, and have a growing ability to, to respond to objections that people have to Christianity, it's not going to be technique that causes us to, to go from reluctance to faithfulness and witness. It's not going to be like, you know, pep talks, you know, kind of internal, I can, I can do this. I really can do this. It's not going to be mustering up the courage. It's not going to be overcoming our fear of failure, fear of saying the wrong thing. It's not going to be any of those things. Now, prayer is essential, and we are going to talk about prayer when we come back to Jonah in two weeks. However, the most fundamental thing, I think the thing that is at root of all other things, is love. It's love for God. And out of love for God, a love that spills over to other people, including those who don't yet know Jesus. The only thing that will move us from reluctance to faithfulness is love. When Paul talked about his witness in 2 Corinthians 5, he didn't point to technique or, or courage or anything other than the love of Christ. When he said it's the love of Christ that compels us to go, to face hardship, to face suffering, to face uh, want, to face rejection. It's love. The love of Christ, love from Christ, love for Christ, compelling him to go. So verses 7 through 9 actually provide a great deal of help when it comes to understanding how in our daily lives, as we consider the love of God, we can move from reluctance to faithfulness. So we're going to look at the text, we're going to look at these three verses, and we are going to ask as best as we can what we see there. What, what do we see when it comes to Jonah and what he got or didn't get, but especially what do we see when it comes to our own hearts as we look at this text? And then secondly, we're going to ask how this text exposes in our hearts what we actually need. And then third, we're going to ask how do we get it? How do we get what we need? 
So first point, very simply, what we see, what we see in the text. Second, what we need. And then third, how by God's grace we get what we need. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, uh, this portion of this prayer, we do pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might see glorious things here. It is your word. It is kept for us. Um, by your grace, seal it to our hearts by the power of your spirit. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 reads, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So the question, what do we see here? Do we see here true repentance on the part of Jonah? Some say yes. Yes, Jonah's clearly repenting. He's cried out to God for help. There's such a change in Jonah from chapter 1 Jonah to chapter 2 Jonah. His orientation is clearly Godward. He's not running from God anymore. He's turned to God. He's crying out to God for help. He's looking to the temple, right? So he's got, he's thinking sacrifice. He's thinking about God's provision for his relationship with God. And of course, in verse 3, he obeyed God. Like he went to Nineveh. Some commentators actually say no. <clears throat> There's no true repentance here in this prayer at all that's actually conspicuously absent. You know, David had the Psalms. David had, I'm sorry, Jonah had the Psalms. Jonah had David's Psalm from Psalm 51 when Jonah prayed his great prayer of repentance in which David acknowledged not only the fact that he sinned but that he is by nature a sinner and there's none of that present in Jonah's prayer. So some would say, you know, no, there's not genuine repentance here. There's no admission of guilt. There's no real heart change. He, he did what he was supposed to do, but chapter 4 reveals he still did so reluctantly. Then look at verse 8. Verse 8 reads, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And so the question is, does verse 8 show genuine concern for the lost? All right, he talks about idolatry here. Those who pay regard to vain idols. Pay regard sounds, you know, weak in English. It makes it sound like, oh, just kind of take a look. No, this is give the life to, cling to idols. Well, what are idols? Of course, idols in uh, Jonah's day, the, the idols that the, the men on the ship were, were looking to, these false gods that they thought would save them. Idols today are idols of the heart. Uh, a definition of idolatry, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity. Right? Anything, anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity is an idol. Martin Luther said this, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Stephen Charnock uh, in The Existence and Attributes of God said all men, all people, worship some golden calf. Right? We all have idols that if we're not looking to God, these are things, often good things, that become ultimate things in our lives. They become God things. We look to them for what only God can give us. An idol, again, is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. What makes idols vain? Because that's what Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols. What makes an idol vain? Well, an idol 
cannot deliver on the promise that you are asking it to keep. You are asking any idol in your heart to be for you and to do for you what only God can do for you. Be your source of comfort. Be your, provide meaning in your life. Provide an identity for who you are. To look to anything other than God for that, that thing is to ask it to make a promise to you that it can't possibly keep. The idols that the sailors on the boat looked to couldn't deliver them. And the idols that people look to today can't deliver. It's very interesting. Uh, even uh, a person who did not identify as a Christian believer, David Foster Wallace, uh, recognized this concerning idolatry. This was a, from a commencement address that he delivered to uh, graduates at Kenyon College in 2005. He said this, again, not a Christian. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I mean, what a compelling case for worshiping the one true God. It wasn't long after this that David Foster Wallace took his own life. But he recognized things that were fundamentally true about the things that we look to in this world for life that cannot deliver. C.S. Lewis said it well when Lewis said, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Idols are vain. They can't deliver on the promises that we ask them to keep. They can't save us. Jonah goes on and says, those who pay regard to vain idols, who give themselves to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's such a tragic line. The steadfast love of the Lord is his grace. It's his hesed. It's his covenant faithfulness. It's that word right there that's translated steadfast love is God standing behind his promise to save and saying, I will save I will never stop showing my love to those who cry out to me for salvation now and forever on into eternity. And to look to an idol, an idol of your heart, something that you've said, I, if I have this, I'll be happy forever, is to forsake the one person that if you have him will make you happy forever. So it's a tragic verse. But the question is, well, what's in Jonah's mind as he says it? I mean, if he's not repenting, then what Jonah's doing here is saying, ha, those fools, they forsake the steadfast love of God. I've got the steadfast love of God. Or, if this is Jonah's repenting, then is he grieving? 
Is there a, a hint that there's a burden here in Jonah's heart to get to Nineveh? Because they need to hear. They need to hear about the, the God who saves, whose steadfast love is unfailing. And then verse 9, verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Is this Jonah just recommitting himself to formal worship? Isaiah says in Isaiah 29, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When Jonah says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, is he just saying, I'm going to get myself back in the place of worship where all these psalms of thanksgiving, like Psalm 107, I'm going to give voice to, I'm going to join in with the chorus, I'm going to offer the sacrifices. Or is this Jonah saying, no, it's not just the voice of thanksgiving, it's my voice of thanksgiving. I'm joining in with that chorus because I see what God has done for me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, here's the point. Let's not be too quick to judge Jonah because we can all see ourselves in both of those scenarios. How many times would you look at me if you saw me repenting and saying, God, I'm, I'm crying out to you. I've, I've drifted away from you. Well, God, would you rescue me? And then God rescues me and then I find myself within a matter of days or hours or whatever it may be back away from God in that same old sin. Have I really repented? Was it genuine? Was it real? I'm a mixed bag and so are you. Do I have a burden for lost people because I recognize that they are actually, they're, they're actually forsaking the one thing that could provide happiness and joy and meaning both now and forever? Do I grieve that? Yeah, I do. But does that compel me to go? And in verse 9, am I worshiping from the heart or with lips only? Well, it depends on the Sunday. Honestly. So let's not be too quick to judge Jonah. Our own hearts are often divided toward God and our own hearts are often divided toward other people. So what do we need? Not just to be faithful witnesses, to, to pass from reluctance to faithfulness, but just to be faithful Christians. What do we need? And Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, when he says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, what we need is greater love for God and for other people. A love that flows out of a greater sense of God's love for us in Christ. We gotta keep those two things connected. Love for God and for other people that flows out of and is fueled by a greater sense of God's love for us in Christ. All right? Now, visuals help. So I'm going to give this a shot. You've seen this before. I put this up. It's actually been two years. can't believe it's been that long. Two years ago, I put this up. If you're in the membership seminar that we do, the Exploring Grace seminar, we go over this uh, quite a bit in order to really make sure we get it. This is... I didn't invent this. I didn't create this. I got it from, uh, I've adapted it from something that uh, the Surge folks put together, uh, the Gospel Transformation folks. Um, this is Christianity with the growing understanding of the Gospel. Now, 
there comes a point if you're a Christian when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, right? So the timeline of your life, there comes a point where you recognize that your sin and God's holiness needs to be dealt with. And you recognize that the cross is what bridges the gap between God's holiness and your sin. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. You have, as it were, a comprehension of the cross. But over time, as a Christian, what ought to be happening in your life as you read the Bible, as you pray, as you grow in your faith, is you see that God is more holy than you realize at the time of your conversion and you're actually more sinful than you realize at the time of your conversion. This is both the bad news and the good news of the gospel. Cheer up. Good news. You're more sinful than you realized. Cheer up. Good news. God's love for you in Christ is greater than you could possibly comprehend. It's the good news and the bad news of the gospel. What's meant to happen over the course of the Christian life is that as we recognize more and more the, the, the height of God's holiness and the, the depth of our sinfulness, we're always remembering the cross of Jesus Christ that in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when it says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That just didn't apply to our comprehension of our sin at the beginning, at the point of our conversion, but actually God's view of us as sinners that we're just growing to realize as we grow as Christians. And so you have in that uh, circle, that cycle of belief and repentance that we'll talk about in a second, 1 John 1, 9. It says when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's this pattern of the Christian life, a pattern of belief and repentance. This is, this, this past Thursday, 503rd anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. The first of the 95 Theses said, when our Lord and Savior said repent, he meant that all of life is to be repentance. Right? It's, it's just this. All of life is turning from our sin and turning to God. It's remembering the grace of God, the cross of Jesus Christ. It's remembering that when God says in 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we actually believe him. And when it says in Romans 5, 8 that, that uh, God demonstrated his love for us and that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that that applies to the sin that we're dealing with right now. And we go. We return. We believe. And with that comes this greater sense of love, of a realization of God's love for us and a consequent ability to love God and others. 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. And so what we need over the course of our lifetime is a greater understanding and comprehension of God's love for us. That's what, that passage that you see there in the arrow, Ephesians 3 14 to 19. In that passage, Paul is praying that we will grow in our comprehension of the love of Christ for us. He writes this in this prayer. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Right? 
And as we grow in our comprehension of God's love for us in Christ, we respond with greater love for God and for others. This, this is the Christian life. It's not moralism. It's not trying really hard to bridge the gap between our sin and God's holiness. We got a little cross. We got a little bit of Jesus at that point of our conversion, but now it's up to us to bridge the gap. That's, that's moralism. It's crushing. Nor is it excusing away our sin. Oh, my sin's not that big of a deal. I'm accepted in God, in, by God in Christ. He doesn't care about my sin, neither should I. No, he died that your sin might be atoned for. But it's a lifetime of remembering and repenting. Remembering and repenting that we might grow in our comprehension of this love that is shown for us by God in Christ and then consequently grow in our ability to love God and to love others. So how do we get that? Well, I've just said it. How do we get this greater love for God and this greater love for others? It's, that it's, it's as we grow in our understanding of God's love for us, and in particular, as we deal with our sin. See, that's where the point of disconnect often happens. I can tell you now, as I'm preaching to you, God loves you, he died for you, the cross is the evidence of his great love for you, believe that, and go love God and other people. And you may leave here with a real sense of conviction and persuasion because God's at work in your heart to go do that. Praise God for that. But more often than not, what happens then is we, you know, get out of here and five minutes after we leave or, you know, tomorrow morning when you wake up, whatever the case may be, you find yourself back dealing with that same sin that clings so closely to you and you forget everything that we've just talked about. And you believe lies like God could never love me. God could never accept me. God's grace was for me yesterday, but it's not for me today. I've got to earn my way with God, or I just need to press on in despair. All right? So how do we grow in our understanding of God's love for us in Christ when we sin? And it is by remembering God's love. By remembering Jonah remembered in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. What does it look like for your life to be fainting away? It, it, it doesn't probably look like it did for Jonah. He was literally dying. What it does look like, I think, in my life and maybe in yours, is what it must have been like for the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal sons in Luke 15. As the younger brother was in the far country, he remembered. He was desperate. His life was fainting away. He was lost. And he remembered. He remembered the love of his father. He remembered how good it was to be at his father's side, to be in his father's household. And he turned and he went home. He remembered. What does it look like for us to remember? It looks like remembering Romans 5.8, like we just saw on the cross chart that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as you're dealing with that sin, whatever that sin is for you, it's remembering God demonstrated his own love for me and that even in this sin, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for me. 
It's remembering 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's remembering that, has, that, that promise applies to this sin, the sin that I've been struggling with my entire life. This sin, that promise applies. That's the faith or the belief, part of the cycle that is all of life all of life repentance by remembering God's love when we sin and by turning away then from our sin by actually turning away from it it's remembering God's grace and then turning away from this sin we, it's really important that we not get those two things reversed if we think that we must first repent and then turn and believe in this God who rescues and saves we're putting a burden on ourselves there that we can't bear. We need God's help in order to turn away from our sin. I think it was Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, Repentance will not make you see Christ, but to see Christ will give you repentance. Right? We look to Christ as we're drifted off into the far country, as we're tasting the gravel that comes with sin once more, as we're realizing that this idol won't save me. We remember, God will. And we look again to Christ. We remember once again the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning and the evidence of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We remember that and we turn and we go home. We turn away from our sin and we return to the Father's side. And that is an all of life reality for Christians. That is not a once and for all thing. We don't know if Jonah ends up repeating that cycle in his life. I am of the opinion that this is real for Jonah. It's real repentance. It's real burden. It's real concern. But what happens by the time you get through Jonah 3 is that Jonah just reveals himself to be just as human as every one of us knows that we are. And so Jonah ends with that open question, will Jonah repent again? Will Jonah see that God is right to have a burden for the Ninevites? And Jonah should too. Because if you love God, you love the things that God loves. And God loves to see people repent and come to faith in him and be saved. And we ought to love that as well. And so the open question at the end of Jonah is the open question for us. And it boils down to this. Do we recognize that all of life is going to be remembering and repenting? And how awesome that is. How awesome it is to know that every time you sin, you have an opportunity to return to the Father's side and experience afresh his great love for you in Jesus. The only way that Romans 6.1, which says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase, makes any sense is this grace really is that radical. To, to actually sin and repent and return to the Father's side is to experience yet again the love of the Father for you that's unfailing. His, his love is steadfast. It doesn't end. He keeps his promise to his own always. To stray away from him is to experience the, the desperation that is life apart from God. To return to him is to experience yet afresh the love that is his 
for his own. So for all of life to be belief and repentance, remembering and repenting, is not to be a life, it's not a life of failure. It's not a life of, man, I should have got this by now. It's actually, it's actually the Christian life. It's actually the life of knowing, yet again, the joy of your salvation. Now that ought to make us humble people. So when we think about those who don't know Christ, it ought to make us profoundly humble to recognize where we are and consequently know where they are to be apart from Christ, but to know the joy of being home with Christ, of being at the Father's side. So how do we grow in our love for God and our love for others? It's by gaining a greater appreciation of God's love for us in Christ, which we experience when we sin and remember God's grace and go home and return. By remembering God's grace when we sin, by turning away from our sin, and then finally by worshiping God. You see it again in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Every time we come together on Sunday morning, we are corporately affirming this truth. We are singing together, like we sang from Psalm 107 this morning, a voice of thanksgiving. We're affirming that God is the one who rescues, that God is the one who saves, that God is the one who calls us home, that God is the one who feeds us when we're in our hunger strike of rebellion. We, we voice that thanksgiving together as we cry out together, the Lord is our salvation. And God works here in our hearts as we're open to his work in our lives he works to cement this truth deeper into us that the Lord is, in fact, our salvation. Just being in worship weekly reinforces these things that we know to be true. So let's wrap it up. How do we move from reluctance to faithfulness in worship? Again, this is part one. We're going to talk about the centrality of prayer when we come back to this in two weeks. But for now, know that it is not going to be you growing in your ability to have all the answers. It's not going to be you mastering some technique. It's not going to be you stirring up courage where it feels there's none. It is going to be love. It is going to be actually living out the Christian life that is marked by love for God and love for people. And the only way it will grow, by, will grow in love for God and love for people is by growing in our comprehension of God's love for us demonstrated at the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's our greatest need. We need you. We need to see more of you by faith. We need to be reminded by your spirit of the work that your son did for us at the cross. Lord, even our remembering is a gift from you. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's your kindness that enables us as we're off in the far country to come to our senses and remember your great love. And so, Lord, I don't know where, where so many of us are right now, but I know that all of us have divided hearts. None of us loves you and loves others well. But by your grace, you are giving us an opportunity to grow in our love for you and our love for other people. You've created us to live that kind of a life and to find our greatest joy and fulfillment 
in loving you and loving others. And so would you uproot these idols that exist in our hearts, these things that we look to and seek to find life and then end up using other people to try to get. Would you allow us instead to have our hearts be inclined always towards you, that in view of your great love for us in Christ, we can't, we can't not love you, that we can't help but love you because of all you're doing and have done. And then out of that great love for you, would you help us to have a burden and a love for those who don't yet know you? And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. God demonstrated his own love for us and that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those are the words of the gospel. We get a picture of the gospel when we come to the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and after he broke it, he gave thanks, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And the apostle Paul tells us as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show forth the Lord's death until he comes. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, if you've made profession of your faith and been baptized, we welcome you to this table. If that's not where you are in your life right now, let me encourage you to put your trust in Jesus Christ, to experience for yourself, beginning today, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Allow the cup to pass by, allow the bread to pass by, and put your trust in Jesus Christ today. I'd like to invite the servers to come forward as they do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what the bread and the cup on this table represent, the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, broken and his blood shed, that we might have forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. We ask that you would set this bread and this cup apart from their common use and that you would use them to accomplish the purpose for which you provided them to your church. That as your people receive these elements by faith in you, we are by your Spirit strengthened to follow you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.